What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And I am now back to back on doing uh, second versions of interviews, and they happen to be with two of my favorite people, and I mean that genuinely. So the last one was with Jesse Draper of Halogen Ventures, and today it's with uh, Jane Saracen Khan, and she is a health economist, advisor, trend weaver. She's also the author of the Health Populi blog, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, the books that she's written. So welcome, Jane. I'm really it's so nice to talk to someone who's as smart as you, but I can also have a very comfortable conversation since we've had a number of these. Thank you, Aaron. I'm so happy to see you and speak with you. I know. So it is worth noting that um, you, I think we were talking about this before, the third non-W2O person that I've actually done two interviews with for What to Know. Jesse was one of the others and Jeremiah Ouyang was the first one. Um, last time we had the luxury of doing this in person and I'm a little sad because it was at the Health 2.0 conference, which I think was last September or October. Feels like a million years ago. And here we are, but um, we're going to have some fun or at least some very interesting discussion. We're recording this before the election, but it's going to go live after the election. So you can <laughs> keep us honest. Lot. Yeah, you can keep <laughs> us honest in terms of how we do this. Well, I just figured that we could record it next week, but uh, it's going to be a little bit of a hectic week next or this week when people are listening to this. Yeah, just a bit. So, um, you know, over the last year, other than some of the obvious, right, we've had COVID, which has changed all the rules. You've written a new book, which we'll talk about in a minute. Tell us a little bit of, uh, you know, what's happened between last fall and this fall, you know, in your life and sort of in your ecosystem. Oh, my gosh. Um, in my life life, and we'll get to this at the end again, um, you know, I became an Italian citizen a few years ago, and thus with an EU passport. And over time, I've been doing more and more work in the EU and digital health, especially, and with a big food client over there, uh, food is medicine kind of thing. And um, this year, uh, 2020, uh, I was supposed to be spending a lot more physical time there, though still obviously working here, keeping my American citizenship. But, um, you know, I have a second home in Brussels now that I share with my wonderful husband. And so this year, I mean, forget it. Brussels is a hot spot and has been and is, is on their second wave. Um, so in any case, the pandemic has changed everything for all of us. Um, and so I, I still feel, though, so blessed. Um, and we talk about this all the time, Robert, my husband and I do, because we have health, we have meaningful work, we can uh, ex extend ourselves to each other via Zoom and have broadband access and can afford that, which a lot of people can't. Um, and in general, I feel really blessed in the midst of this public health uh, crisis, the social and civil crisis. Um, so really making lemonade out of lemons for sure right now and just really trying to stay compass mentis um, and loving and full of grace as much as I can. Well, you know, the thing that you just continually remind me of, and we saw this because you were kind enough to come on our internal town hall. And it is that sense of you're, you're so smart and so savvy, but you do have this humanistic quality. And, you know, you're talking about embracing love and talking about just making lemonade out of lemons when a lot of people are not looking at it that way. It's, I think one of the things I know I admire about you and many others do, and it really is the mantra I think we have to have right now, because, you know, without that, it's, 
what else keeps us sane and what else keeps us marching forward, right? Yeah, I mean, and we're uh, this really has democratized small d everybody. I mean, you have to feel humble uh, in the face of this tricky, tricky virus. I have some very smart friends. I just found out from in New York City last week a couple, and they've just contracted COVID, and they've been bloody careful, like uh, two pretty conservative living people. Uh, conservative in the way of masking and distancing. And I mean, they've got it now. Uh, thank God mild symptoms. But I mean, this thing is humbling. And um, I think we all have to learn from that and keep exhaling and find you know mental and, and social love hacks to stay well and, and, and in the moment. Not And that's not a cliche. I mean, mindfulness is really important right now. Um, so anyway, there we are. It may be the most important. And that does actually, it's a nice transition into the next question because last go around, we were talking about your first book. You've written a subsequent book that's around a similar topic. It's called Health Citizenship. And it's just such a simple but profound idea. And it came out on the Kindle. You now have a printed version of it. Uh, I'm really looking forward to owning one of the printed versions of it. Let's talk a little bit about the inspiration for the book. And then let's talk more about health citizenship and what it means. Yeah. So um, the first book published last May, May 19, again, a lifetime ago, was called Health Consuming. One word that I got the copyright for because it's a concept. One word, health consuming. It health consumes us. Uh, we are health consumers. We are the payer, etc. cetera. Uh, and we tagline that book, Health Consuming, From Health Consumer to Health Citizen. And at the end of that book, I asked the question, will Americans become health citizens in that they would eventually have, we would eventually have universal health care in some way? And I don't specify what way, but everybody has access to health care and a really good privacy law. Uh, the way Europeans have the GDPR uh, and others have comprehensive privacy laws beyond HIPAA, GINA, COPA, and all this fragmented privacy. And I kind of ended it there, the last book, asking that question. Then enter the pandemic, um, just a couple months after uh, after the new year. And, um, you know, I took my last flight February 28th from San Diego, where I was meeting with Sharp Healthcare System, talking about um, the new health consumer. And then this before I gave my keynote, my last keynote live uh, this year, the CEO of Sharp came out and uh, told 300 medical uh, directors and executives in the system, we may have a problem getting PPE gowns and masks. And I didn't even know what PPE meant on February 28th. So that was the precursor to me giving my talk where I used a clever, cute, mask cartoon from the New Yorker to introduce it. Little did I know that I would not take a plane since then, came home the next day to Philadelphia, to suburban Philadelphia. And so life as we know it has changed. So what happened then for me, because all my work went digital and, and, and virtual like this, speaking, advising, all the work that I do, um, 
I started to get data. I started to get manic about who who's the new consumer now? Who are we? We are being reshapen. I'm being reshapen. I feel it. Um, my kid, who's 24, she's being reshapen up in Boston, staying home from her job. Me teleworking for 20 years, but in a new way, because all of a sudden my clients were calling me from pharma, from health plans, from med device companies, from VC saying, how do you set up a home office? So, I mean, I was now consulting with a small C uh, for, uh, you know, love, no money. Um, how do you do this kind of thing, which I've been doing for a long time. So I was gathering data from Accenture, Deloitte, uh, PwC, Nielsen, learning about the pandemic pantry and how consumers were being reshapen as consumers, as patients, and then as health citizens and politically, given that this is 2020. And then by August, I had to kind of say, okay, I know enough now to identify five key trends about how we are changing. And those lenses were the digitization of the person. So, you know, we've been talking about digital transformation of right. organizations, right? but now it's the consumer who's getting digitally transformed uh, in this, in the stay home, telework, teleschool era. The second trend then was DIY, everything we could do at home from, you know, uh, as we did in the 2008 recession, stay home and, and improve our houses, go to Home Depot and Lowe's, which were open as essential companies, cooking, baking. Friends of mine who really didn't cook very much before, all of a sudden, they're putting sourdough breads on Instagram, which was a thing, is still a thing. Um, and then these third and fourth trends, um, the uh, two toxic side effects, mental health and financial health, both at the same time in the pandemic, um, all of us little PTSD at home through alone together um, and isolation, which is a real thing um, for all of us dealing with. And then financial unwellness for so many people uh, in this pandemic, in the shutdown era, losing jobs. And we can talk more about the economy later when we look at the future. And then the fifth trend, the home as the health hub. All of a sudden, telehealth taking off, more self-care, big increases in the use of vitamins, minerals, and supplements, people looking to those things and food to boost immunity. So there's a new um, awareness of that, which to me is very exciting and one of the gifts uh, coming out of this. So anyway, I wrote the book based on those five themes, ending with um, how we have come to open hearts and minds to health citizenship in this public health crisis. Again, it may become a gift, uh, depending what we see happen next week in the election. And if people vote based on health, which um, we can talk more about that if you want, but it's definitely on everybody's minds for sure. Yeah, so I do want to talk about the election because by the time people listen to this, it will have already happened. We may or may not have an answer. My guess is I'm hoping that we'll have a clear-cut answer, but it may take at least a few days, if not several weeks, to clear up. And I know there's a mandate that uh, we had Representative Alyssa Slotkin from your home state of Michigan uh, on a town hall that we did the other day. And she said that I think there's a federal required date. It's in December that um, December 14th. Yes. The Electoral College has to report to Congress who the new president of the United States is, which yeah. is why when we had Gore versus Bush and the hanging chat in Florida and the Supreme Court, <laughs> they had a deadline that, you know, they were up against. So as someone that I know pays a lot of attention to politics, uh, because yeah. you need to, 
First of all, let's talk a little bit about predictions for the presidential election. And then more specifically, which I think is germane, is like, let's talk about some of the key issues on voters' minds, uh, you know, based on latest polls, that the pandemic, economy, civil society, violence, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to predict Biden versus Trump by name, but I, I, I do scenario planning in my work for clients. So when I think about um, that question, um, you know, who's going to win, we look at what is on voters' minds entering. And I've been tracking this for uh, since, you know, 2016. So here's, here's something we know we know, that in 2018, in the midterms, um, healthcare was the number one issue driving people to vote. People were starting to see their Affordable Care Act plans eroding certain aspects of them. And then, of course, the, the big deal, people worrying about losing pre-existing condition protections, which now is still you know, the big thing that people are, uh, seem to be worried about. Uh, and both presidential candidates saying they, they promise protection of pre-existing conditions, although in very different ways. Um, so you have to look at the details of these, their, each of their plans. What is on voters' minds now, two years later, um, the pandemic um, is two things. It's lives, so physical lives, and it's livelihoods. So it's the pandemic and the virus at keeping that at bay, but it's also the economic impact, jobs. And that's the tension that we've seen in, in between the two presidential candidates, which is, you know, one accusing the other of wanting to shut everything down. And that is not what the other candidate's saying, but it, you know, that's politics. So you have this tension between opening safely, getting back to school safely, um, and that these are the top two issues, which is lives and livelihoods, the pandemic and the economy. But we also had, you know, uh, this summer rising up social and civil unrest uh, as another epi epidemic, really, um, the social and civil society issue, violence. Um, and in some of the Nielsen data, and then I looked and in my book, I quote data from the FBI filings for gun certificates we see great increase ratcheting up of gun purchases post pandemic. And it's concerning if, if I put my public health hat on and I have a degree in public health along with a degree in economics, guns are a public health issue uh, and they became so, you know, years ago and increasingly with the school shootings and pediatricians getting involved in a, this is my lane campaign, this is my business, worrying about kids and guns. So that issue is still with me, resonates with me a lot in looking at one of the wild cards coming out of, you know, who wins the, who doesn't win the election next Tuesday. And again, today's October 29th, as we record this, but will there be a peaceful transition either a second term of President Trump or a new term of Biden. And one of the reasons you're seeing George Washington's chair image behind me, this is nine images of his one chair in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, is um, I've been talking a lot about this peaceful transition. And Ben Franklin was wont to have said uh, when George Washington gave up the mantle to Adams um, in a peaceful way, Benjamin Franklin pointed to that image 
uh, Washington's chair and said, is a rising sun or a setting sun? And he said, I choose to believe this is a rising sun for a democratic republic to survive. So my, in my hopefulness as a health citizen, I hope this is a rising sun. Whatever happens, we want a peaceful transition or continuance of a second term of Trump so that I don't have to deal with that wild card of guns on the street because that does worry me. But um, anyway, who's going to win? Don't know. I, obviously, as of today, nationally, Biden has an edge over Trump, but it's the battleground states. We know that. And so I was an early voter in my state of Pennsylvania which is a key, key state, one of three or five, that will determine the result. So we made sure we got mail ballots, but we hand carried them to the county polling place. Not just a drop box, but we went to the county seat and took them in. And so we're, 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 we're voted now. So Pennsylvania's got our votes, two votes in my household from here. Well, I'm gonna take two interesting sort of detours if you don't mind. One is related to what you just said, and that is that I read today, there's a very good chance that uh, Biden will carry the state of Pennsylvania by about five percentage, uh, you know, about 5%. Uh, what's going to be tricky is because a lot of the Democrats are the ones that were the early voters, that the phenomena you'll see that night is we will go to bed with Trump leading in Pennsylvania. And that by the time all of the, the mail-in ballots are counted or the early votes are counted, that it will swing in his favor. And I, I do feel like as Pennsylvania being one of those, Nate Silver pointed it to it being the state, that it could contribute to that narrative of Trump and some of his um, you know, followers that you know, there's foul play and that, you know, look, this is why you can't trust early votes. Any thoughts on that in terms of? Well, I mean, you at W2O Group are the great communicators. But um, President Trump has been communicating the concept of a rigged election since before he won. And he still talks about it, you know, being rigged. And um, I don't get that because he won. He won the Electoral College. Um, and that's how we do it in America. So there's the popular vote and there's the Electoral College. And until that changes, it's about these three or five states. And, uh, you know, that's a whole other, that's our third podcast. We can talk about, you know, what are the prospects for popular voting? Because um, there really is an argument to that now with social media and we all get the same information, right? So uh, anyway, whether you're in Iowa or uh, Kentucky or Michigan. Um, so no, I, I think, you know, that is a scenario that I worry about. Um, we want and, and that's why everybody's saying, don't count on, yeah, exhale, everybody. Did you see the ad I just saw yesterday? So yesterday would have been October 28th that Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota was involved in bipartisan ad for governors, Democrat, um, Republican and independent, including Jesse Ventura from the last 20 years, all sitting down with their masks saying, everyone calm down. We probably won't know who will be president on the on uh, November 3rd. And that's okay. That's how the system works well. And so I, I, I want everybody to take a look on YouTube at that ad from the state of Minnesota, where these governors in a tripartisan way have come together to say, chill. This is how it works. This is America. To, and that's what my chair here from George Washington is about. Chill, everyone. This will come out. We will sort it out. Kumbaya.
Well, and I've heard that from enough smart people where I do genuinely trust that. I do want to take another detour. And we talked about not talking about this, but because I can see it in the visual. And if we do decide to put the video portion of this, you have a shirt on and I'm going to call it out because you're one of the most thoughtful people I know. And so it says nasty women vote. And I think if I'm reading it correctly, there's some strong irony here because I know our president has called uh, people like Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Nast, uh, Nasty Nancy, and has called the women those nasty women. And so this is a little bit of a shot at, you know, nasty women also vote and we have a say in the matter. I'm sort of, uh, I'm making that up, but I'm assuming that that probably has something to do with the shirt you're wearing today. Well, um, I usually am not this um, vocal on a shirt because I wear black Eileen Fisher clothes all the time, but Eileen Fisher has come out too uh, in many ways in the pandemic uh, politically, and she's a shy woman, brilliant woman, and I love her and admire her. Um, in the pandemic, and I'm an economist too, that's the other hat I wear, I've been really concerned about the recession so the economic downturn being a she session, the recession in the pan, this pandemic, in this recession, in 2008, it hit men harder than women because it hit those jobs and financial services and in construction harder than it did women's jobs. But this recession is really hitting women hard, especially working women who have children at home, who have had to give up their jobs to educate their kids at home or take care of their kids. So, I mean, I'm really worried about that aspect of women in the she session and women's health with this week's appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Um, so uh, again, that's a huge issue for me, women's health, just health access for all but particularly women who've paid a pink tax for many years. You know, women's pink razor blades cost more than men's orange or black ones for years. I mean, silly things, but it's not silly. We just have seen women pay more for consumer products, the same products designed for women than men, and healthcare women have paid more uh, than, healthcare, than men. And that changed with the Affordable Care Act. Um, and now when we see those things erode. So I think about nasty women voting on a, for a couple of reasons, um, the economy, the pink tax, and then women's health access um, so that we don't have to go back to a very dark time in America. Well, thank you for going there. And like I said, the only reason I bring it up is I can see the top of it and I don't want people to get it out of context because you are yes. very thoughtful about everything that you do. Yes. Uh, nasty women vote. I'm not just nasty. That's right. Janet Jackson's song, <laughs> notwithstanding, it's about voting and being a health citizen as a woman. Right. Well, and that's like I said, that's why I wanted to provide the context. So I appreciate you going there, even though we talked about yeah. not. Um, that's it. I know you care a lot about other elections. Uh, you happen to live in one of the key battlegrounds. You come from another state, Michigan, that is also going to be in one of the key battlegrounds. Which elections are you looking at, you know, both presidential all the way down to local races and, and why? Yeah, this year, um, and I've been tracking politics for a long time, the up and down ballot is really important now. Um, pandemic, economy, um, income disparities, all the things, social determinants of health, um, and broadband's really important as a social determinant of health too. Um, 
for me, one of the key uh, elections will be Mitch McConnell's election in Kentucky. He's, of course, head of the Senate. And in June 19, June 2019, he called himself the Grim Reaper. Um, and then he's called, he called himself the Grim Reaper. Um, and other people have quoted it since. But um, he, he was a grim reaper because he was going to shut down any legislation um, that could go forward that he didn't agree with. He wouldn't even have debates about, about certain legislation. And so that gets to the Affordable Care Act and healing health care and lots of other issues like broadband and school lunch programs and um, any number of things. We've had very little legislation passed, in fact, since President Trump has taken office. Congress has been really gridlocked. That is not a good thing for anybody. No, it's not. So I'm trying to relieve the gridlock. So I, I'm looking at Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath. She was up a little bit um, a couple months ago, but I think Mitch is still going to pull it out um, and we will see. Um, but then we we will see uh, who uh, which party takes the Senate which is a whole other, we could have a, a balance of power shift there. Another race that's important to me is um, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, um, you know, versus uh, Jamie Harrison, who's a fascinating character. And I'm really watching that race closely. I think, again, looking at old guard, new guard, uh, the changing face of America, Jamie's a really positive force. And then the third one, I'm really keen to see happen is Mark Kelly in Arizona. Arizona, another battleground state. Arizona, interesting, very quickly changing demographics. And so we watch Arizona as kind of a sentinel event. Um, and of course he's uh, battling Martha McSally, uh, no friend to women's health or um, other issues. So those are the three um, Senate elections I'm looking at. And then of course down ballot certain state houses, again, looking at health healthcare, women's health, um, really keen to see certain state houses um, turn toward health. That's all I worry about is health and healthcare. So um, those elections that are, you know, good for health, the way I look at public health, those are the ones I'm watching. Well, I like your unified approach to that. And, and those I think are races a lot of people are looking at. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about what your thoughts are on vaccine distribution. I know that's a little bit of a shift, but it's politically related and the outcome of the election, I think will determine that. And so, you know, when we get them, how do people trust that they're ready for prime time, knowing one, how important they'll, the role they'll play in two, the fact that it has really become such a politicized uh, topic? You know, um, on Twitter, and I've been on Twitter for a long time, I've used the hashtag vaccines work forever. Like I'm a pro vaccine person. And when you go to public health school, it's kind of one of the Hippocratic oaths you take, you will love vaccines um, for all. Uh, my mother, Polly, um, brought the Sabin Salk vaccine to Oak Park schools. That's Oak Park, Michigan, not Illinois. She was part of her, her team. Uh, and she inspired me, you know, a long time ago, which we've talked about. But um, so, I mean, vaccines have been part of, you know, my life since I was a little girl taking the little sugar cube in a long line that looked like a, a Catholic uh, communion line at school. Um, so fast forward now, the, politiza the politicization of vaccines is like unbelievable. So that I might be considered an anti-vax person now 
because now don't take this out of context, everybody. Don't cut this out and use it in a future political campaign I may or may not have. Um, the fact is, as Kamala Harris said in her uh, debate with President with Vice President Pence, um, it depends on who's telling me it's safe or not. If Dr. Fauci tells me whose um, trust equity is still high, although eroded in the last few months, again, because of this, if my doctor, my GP tells me it's good, um, and if I trust who's in the FDA at the time and other doctors who I trust, if the data are there, of course I will take the vaccine. Um, but we're at a really weird moment now. So distribution, um, clearly older people will probably be queued up first who've been frailer um, and at higher risk for the vaccine and uh, such workers, but will they trust the vaccine? So if there's a Joe Biden presidency, versus a, Trump, a President Trump presidency. Those are two very different trust relationships that Americans have. Um, some people will trust Trump more, some people will trust Biden more. And I think how that, that will play out depending who is president and who then that president has in the leadership positions at the FDA and the CDC. And again, where will Dr. Fauci be um, weeks later? you know, uh, after the election or after June, tw uh, January 20th? Will he still be in the NIAID? You know, I don't know. So I hope he is. Um, but I think a lot of it is trust in leadership and um, that remains to be seen. And I hate that we are in that position now. Like that just is nonsensical to me. Yeah, I think we've all realized that, you know, irrespective of politics, it's okay to disagree even on fundamental issues, but when you take trust out of the mix, it really does make it difficult because there are a lot of people that just don't know where to go to get the right information. And we know that places like Facebook have played an increasingly important role. I think last election was 78% of people got their primary information from Facebook. And we know how much misinformation is out there between trolls and you know foreign governments. Um, I do want to... I do want to be mindful of time. We've got about 10 more minutes. We've got three more questions. I think the important one, and I'm going to combine two, but you know, what do the next four years look like and irrespective of what does happen with the elections? How do we go about healing and moving forward? Oh boy. Okay. So, um, so the next four years in my scenario planning work, I'm going to share uh, when we do scenario planning, we look at what we know we know, certainties, what we know we don't know, uncertainties, and then wild cards, things that could just blow a forecast to smithereens. So the wild card I'll keep aside for a minute. What do we know we know? In, in my read of the tea leaves, a couple of things, we don't have time to go into the whole um, primer uh, on scenario planning for the next four years. One certainty is that, and, and I take my cue here, from scientists that I trust um, and large companies, large employers who aren't calling people back to work in a physical way until at least next July. Um, Standard & Poor's, for example, told my nephew in New York City, you won't come back to Wall Street until July 1st next year. My daughter who works for a tech company up in Boston, she was told she may work at home probably the rest of her life. I don't think she likes that idea, by the way, because um, she's young and likes a tribe around her. But uh, in any case, um, the point is the pandemic, way, working this way, virtually teleworking, 
Um, and in terms of vaccine distribution, and the fact that today only about 40% of people said they'll line up first to take it. So herd immunity, it may, this may never happen. Uh, I think we are going to be this way until at least the fourth quarter of next year. That is a certainty in, in, in the way I'm looking at the world. Um, and I'm trying to do cognitive therapy on myself uh, and, and very seriously to say, um, this is how it's gonna be in terms of work, in terms of socializing and in terms of loving my friend, loving on my friends, you know, Zoom cocktails and all of that. Another year, um, that's one certainty. This pandemic will last well through the second quarter next year. Okay, uh, Pfizer and Moderna came out recently to say we probably won't have mass distribution of vaccine till June. Mass for people like us, healthy. You know, younger, not young, young, but younger. So um, that's June. Well, that there's two doses. So you figure, I'm just thinking about that that way. The second certainty is that we consumers, people will be dealing with mental health and financial health stressors into 2022. That's a certainty. So the growing area of telehealth is telemental health. And because we have a shortage of face-to-face -face psychologists, therapists of all flavors for kids and adults. So I'm looking at the mental health epidemic as a real thing that we have to wrestle with. And we'll talk about then your second question with respect to that, our heads and our hearts. The uncertainties we have to deal with is economic growth. And today's a propitious day for me to talk about this. Today is October 29th. And today we learned that um, the economy grew this quarter by 33%. And so President Trump is, is having a big, a big announcement, big party today, lots of tweets. And that's great, 33% is great. But last quarter, it declined 33%. So we are now at net zero. So the question now becomes what's going to happen the next quarter? Let me give you a hint. The other piece of news that came out today on the economy is that last week, 750,000 Americans filed for unemployment. So when we ask, is it a, and this is a little wonky, the V recovery or a K recovery, it's a K recovery. And I'll just say it's a K recovery because wealthier people are getting, are wealthy and staying there, but people who've lost their jobs, the she session, et cetera, doing much worse, food insecurity, lack of jobs, and these uh, three quarters of a million more people unemployed. So balance it out, my friends, you take, the whole picture, uh, the macroeconomy picture. Um, and then social unrest is my other uncertainty, which is going to be a problem. The biggest wild card I see, which is really scary, and what's keeping me up right now, is that if President Trump does lose in his lame duck presidency, we could have kind, some kind of international skirmish or war, and I'll just say a little w, war. But that frightens me a little bit, the uncertainty and, and sort of, you know, the unpredictability of, of him. And, and, and that's fair to say, you know, he's very unpredictable. So um, that's the wild card. And that's always a wild card in a, a war and terrorism uh, are always wild cards in scenarios. But this one, I think, is one to, to call up. How do we, um, how do we heal? As we talked early on, as I talked early on, I think it is finding grace and love and joy in our as, as part of health citizenship. This new social contract 
which is, yeah, everybody should get health care and we need good privacy and we need to trust science and each other. That's our third pillar of health citizenship in my book. But the fourth is the new social contract. And it is love. It is love. It is I wear the mask for you, you for me. That's love in the pandemic. You know, um, that's the translation of it. And it's a sense of community, like public health. We can't get through this. We can't crush the virus unless we care to do so for each other. Um, so there is responsibility with health citizenship, not just goodies, not just free health care and privacy, but we got to come together for a couple of months with a mask and some distancing and respect and not so much road rage and going postal at the UPS store, which I just saw happen the other day in my world. So yeah, you know. Big time, yeah. Well, thank you for that holistic answer. And I do want to be mindful because I know that uh, we both turn into pumpkins in a couple minutes here, but um, <laughs> So I guess I'll give you a choice. We have two questions. One is you have one wish, what would it be and why? And then a fun one. Where's the first place you're going to go to the U.S., outside the U.S. and travel when it's safe to do so? You can either pick one and give a longer answer or you can answer both in rapid fire format. I have to do two short ones because they're good questions. So, the, you know, the prayer everybody, everybody wishes for world peace. So in this case, um, as soon as I thought you might be asking me something like that, I called up that old song from the Young Bloods from 1967, Get Together. And it went, um, come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. And I really, really want that so much, which is why my book is subtitled How a Virus Opened Hearts and Minds. Because I really do see a majority, it's not 99% of people, but in America, I do, I'm feeling it. I really am, I'm feeling the voter turnout in the mail, everybody's more engaged or most people. So I'm hopeful, the Youngblood song. And then where would I go? Well, there's only one place I would go and that's cause I love the man I'm married to. And that's that he's gotta get back to Brussels soon uh, for work before the end of the year, even with Brussels on fire with COVID, it's, he's gotta get there. So um, after CES in the new year, and even though CES is virtual, I'll have a role to play uh, in, in Vegas time. So I'm not gonna do that for Brussels, but shortly uh, you know, in the latter January, I gotta get on a, a plane with mask and cone head and whatever, direct from Newark, to Brussels, there is a flight on United and that will be the first plane I take to Brussels to be with Robert, at least through his birthday in mid-February. And then I'll get back here at some point. Well, those are lovely answers and they're worst places to go. And uh, I think I mentioned to you on the upfront, uh, two episodes in a row that I got my guests to sing. So you and Jesse, bravo. Um, for those listening in, this is Aaron Strout, CMO W2O, host of the What's Know podcast show. I've really loved my conversation, to use that love word again, with Jane Sorensen Khan, who is a health economist, advisor, trend weaver, author of the Health Populi blog, and a couple of amazing books. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Be well, everyone. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whwillgroup.com slash what to know.